This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Hilary Ryder, Internal Medicine Residency Program Director, Director of Internal Medicine Education, and Academic Chair of Medicine at Texas Health Fort Worth. Dr. Ryder is also American Society of Bioethics and Humanities Certified Healthcare Ethicist, a member of the Ethics Committee at Texas Health Fort Worth, and a former chair of the Ethics Committee at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, my alma mater, and will be discussing medical ethics with us today. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Ryder. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me to join you. We've been able to collaborate on other projects recently, which really kind of sparked the idea of this podcast, since, you know, we're all really about building that bridge and linking the clinical practice and and other aspects of practice. And so maybe to kick us off, could you kind of help us understand why should I consider getting an ethics consult? What value could this bring to my clinical practice? Just a little background, the Joint Commission requires every hospital to have an ethics committee. So even if you've never heard of an ethics committee at your hospital, one exists. Many ethics committees do clinical consultations. Uh, They also get involved in policy as well as education, whether that's GME or lunch and learns, those types of things. Um, So there are ethicists at your institution who who are doing this work, but how present or visible they are may be really variable. So it is a common question. You know, I think if you have called an ethics consult or you've had a friend who called one and they took longer because they like to talk and think, or, you know, you felt like, gee, you know, I took some ethics in medical school. Like I kind of know what I'm doing. It's fine. My personal experience having done ethics consults for, I think, eight or nine, maybe even more than that years is I always learn something when I do one. And the people that I'm working with on the ethics consult on the other end, I think also learn something. That's my goal. So at my previous institution, we would carry a pager and get a phone call. My current institution, we actually have a way through Epic to get consults. So it's a little bit different because as the doc, they're pre-screened for me now. But when I used to carry the pager and just kind of take all comers, the, the really most common reason for calling an ethics consult is what we call moral distress. And really that's an instance where a clinician or a staff, some sort of provider knows the right thing to do, but institutional or other constraints make that impossible. And I would say the most common would be an incapacitated patient in the ICU who is in pain and suffering and the family who are the legal surrogates are saying, don't medicate or don't withdraw care, right? And so the nurse is stuck providing care that she potentially feels might be futile to a patient who is clearly suffering and she doesn't want to do that, but she's forced to because the doctors are saying this is something that we, right? So that, I feel like we get that that scenario five or six times a year. I think other reasons, if you're concerned about the choices the family or a patient might be making, and I think the two biggest buckets there are around capacity, capacity to make a decision. So a patient is making a strange or unusual decision, or a family is making an unusual decision, or their motives might be questionable. For example, we had a case a while back where the family, again, one of these patient is never going to make it out of the hospital alive. Family doesn't want to focus on comfort. And a nurse overheard a family say, well, you know, we're going to lose our house if the social security checks stop coming. So we need to keep her alive as long as possible. 
because our rent is at stake, right? So then it's like, well, are we doing this for this patient? Or are we doing this because they don't want to lose their house and how else what might we manage their home insecurity from other than keeping their grandmother alive? Minors is another big issue. And you guys probably see that in the blood banking community. Very, very early in my career, had an African-American family who had recently converted to Jehovah's Witnesses and son was a sickler. Uh, had sickle cell anemia uh, and came in with a sickle crisis and had been transfused a bunch before, but now he's a Jehovah's Witness. And the mom was like, well, nope, can't do that anymore, right? And, and, and so how do you manage that situation? You know, the child's hemoglobin is dropping, he's oxygen dependent, the mother is saying, these are my religious beliefs, how do you manage that? Um, I would say the two other instances where someone might get an ethics consult or where we might have something to offer are when multiple teams are involved and there's a breakdown in communication between teams. The holy grail, although a minority of cases, is really when you're not really sure what the right course of action is, you think you've got an idea, you've got a little bit of worries around it, you kind of just want to run it by someone else. So I can't provide um, medical advice. And even in as a hospitalist, as an internist, I don't provide medical advice as an ethicist. But if you're wondering like, gee, this is making me a little nervous. I don't know if this is the right thing to do. That would be a great reason to call an ethics consult. Wow. You know, so I'm already learning some stuff that embarrassingly we've actually, uh, you know, collaborated a few times, but just now you've reminded me, I guess I'll say to give myself some grace that it's not just practice questions, but you also brought up policy as well as education, which it sounds like both of our hearts beat for, you know, embarrassingly, I don't think I have involved our medical ethics team in my transfusion medicine fellowship, but I think I've got something to put on my to-do list. You brought up the concepts of a timing might work different for an ethics consult as opposed to like a GI consult, cardiology consult. And then you were talking about, it sounds like the process might look a little different. And so what should I understand in order to really work better with our local med ethics team? Sure. So, you know, I think GI is a great comparison, right? If you've got someone with an upper GI bleed and they're exsanguinating and you're like, we need someone now, right? Like your hospital, if it is large, any size hospital, it's either got a method of transferring, stabilizing a patient, transferring them immediately to a, a larger hospital, or it's got a method of getting a gastroenterologist in there who can do an endoscopy, find the source of bleeding, you know, do something. You don't go into GI without realizing that you're going to be doing some call and managing these type of emergencies. Um, one of the things that I like to say, uh, which is not super popular, but there really are no ethical emergencies. So if someone is calling me and saying, like, I need an answer now, my answer is always you should use your best clinical judgment. There's really no such thing as an ethical emergency because ethics is really a deliberative art and maybe on its best day, even uh, with some science behind it. And so if you present a GI, you know, again, to use this upper GI bleeder case, if you present that to nine certified gastroenterologists, eight and a half at least, they're going to manage it the same, right? They're going to come to the same conclusion about what the next step is. They're going to manage it the same way. And then you've got the guy who doesn't choose Crest and we don't really understand that guy, but right. But the vast majority are going to do things the same way. With ethics, we really have to be deliberative because every situation is unique. One of the things you and I collaborated over is some of the ethical challenges in COVID and and talking about kind of chronic blood shortages. If you call an ethicist and you're in the midst of a mass casualty resuscitation and you're like, 
should I use the ninth unit or should I stop? I'm going to be like, well, I, I don't know. Tell me more. You can't give a nutshell of an ethics consult. And in fact, just to go down that rabbit hole a little bit further, usually when someone calls me for an ethics consult and, and I've trained the bulk of the ethics team that's back at Dartmouth, I just recently moved to, to Fort Worth, Texas. The number one thing we started training them on answering the phone, because the first thing you need to figure out is what is the question? And it's rarely why the person is calling. There's often a question, there's often an ethical issue that needs to be unpacked, but it's often kind of adjacent to why the person is calling, right? So someone calls with an emergency, I need at the very least to be able to talk to the person and then talk to other members of the team and then talk to my colleagues before I can be of help. So if you're in an emergency situation, you may need to call legal. There are a variety of services that we work very closely with. And maybe it's because ethics is badly taught in school. I think many people think of ethics as like the morals police, or we're going to tell you what to do. One of the reasons I actually like ethics is there's rarely the right thing to do. Clinically, there often is the right thing to do. But ethically, there's often a range of possible options. And the goal of the ethics consultant is really to understand where the ethical question is and then help the team together figure out this kind of range of options that might be reasonable or appropriate and then get everyone on the same page that like, yes, these variety of options are all reasonable and appropriate. I really like the training on answering the phone. That's something uh, for us in transfusion medicine is very relevant, not just uh, answering the phone, but initiating a phone call with a colleague. And like your, your point is like really unpacking what is at the core of the issue. That's really um, quite insightful, I think, for all the audience to kind of reflect upon. And I like your final point that it ends with a, a range of possibilities. And, and I think that's helpful to kind of understand that on the outset, because I think sometimes the, the times that I've been involved where somebody is called ethics, they kind of was ethics will tell us and, and we'll get that forward movement on taking care of the patient the way that we, we think they should, I suppose. But I think to understand that range is really healthy because I think it highlights the fact that ethics is your partner, your collaborator. They're not taking over medical judgment of something that is in your lane, but you are really uh, trained in this discipline that helps you actually untangle it. And right now I'm reflecting back to earlier in our conversation, it's kind of these wicked problems. I mean, these things are so complex. I mean, you were talking about somebody losing their rent and their housing if, if we took some action. So med ethics can really help us untangle some very complex webs. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. Many of us in laboratory medicine, pathology, uh, work on organizational workflows, and, and you were talking about policy that MedEthics is involved in. There's this idea that you introduced me to about a month ago uh, about organizational ethics. Could you help us kind of understand about organizational ethics? That's probably a new term for most of our listeners, and how does that compare and contrast with 
that hospital ethics committee that you said everybody's got and we're maybe most used to turning to? I think if you've worked with an ethics committee, a clinical ethics committee or a biomedical ethics committee, they may have different names. The focus there, at least the, the clinical focus is on the individual or maybe the family as a unit. Ethics has been around thousands of years, but the idea of organizational ethics is really something that's fairly new. And, and the idea is instead of thinking about the individual as the nidus of the challenge, it, it's about thinking about collectives of individuals, be they clinicians, community members, a type of staff. Organizational ethic really is, it's about institutional decision-making and strategic planning. And it often starts from a mission statement. I for a long time wondered, why do we have a mission statement? But a thoughtful mission statement can really give you clues as to the values and culture of an institution that you belong to. And that can then drive decision-making and planning. If you have a robust ethics, organizational ethics uh, committee, some of the issues that they might be engaged in are things like conflict of interest. If you're a clinician, you're probably signing a conflict of interest form every year. That can give you a good sense of who's doing the organizational ethics at your hospital. It can be legal. It can be compliance. It could actually be an org ethics committee. Other compliance issues, regulatory issues, those types of issues, managed care and how managed care is managed at your institution, medical record keeping, so things like confidentiality, how HIPAA is managed at your institution, is managed by organizational ethics, fair hiring practice, discrimination, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I think hopefully is a hot topic at your institution, uh, at all of our institutions, how we manage vulnerable populations. The ethics committee will often have policies around end-of-life decision-making, surrogate decision-making, right? They'll tend to manage those types of policies, withdrawal of care maybe, but the organizational ethics committee often manages all of the other policies. Marketing, is the marketing adherent to policy? Is it, is it in line with the mission of the hospital? The organizational ethics, I think um, to the point of blood banking, um, can regulate how we interact with vendors. And for most clinicians, I talk about kind of relationships with pharmaceuticals, but you know, I think you and I have talked about you know, relationships with external blood banks for smaller hospitals. So how you're choosing, so with pharmaceuticals, it's how are you choosing which PPI is on formulary? Is one PPI coming in with lunches for your executive team and all of a sudden everyone's on the purple pill or is there a robust mission-driven way of determining the formulary? I, I guess I might apply that with slightly less knowledge to blood banking, right? Why are you choosing the blood banker that you're working with? Is it because their mission most closely aligns with you? Is it because their platelets last longer than everybody else's? Is it because you think their blood is safer? Or is it because they came in cheaper? How is that relationship defined? And, and how are those choices being made? Many large hospitals, most academic centers will have a lobbyist in their state government, and that should be organized under organizational ethics. How does the lobbyist interact with the senators and uh, legislators in your state? How do you interact with the community, right? So for example, you know, we both were at Dartmouth. Dartmouth does a huge push for influenza vaccination, and that's clearly mission-driven around improving community health, how to decide how you interact with your community. And then also, you know, with clinicians, and, you know, we tend to hear in the news about instances of abuse or fraud, um, but also even stuff like conscience-based refusal, right? A physician who doesn't want to provide a certain type of service or care or in a specific instance, 
doesn't feel appropriate in providing it. There's a lot of different areas in which organizational ethics is active, but they're not necessarily as visible to people who are the frontline clinicians. You know, I think if you're in a leadership or administrative role within your department, you've probably had some sort of contact with someone who's doing organizational ethics, but for the frontline clinicians and other healthcare providers, you, you may not. You know, I think the big challenges in organizational ethics are really how do healthcare institutions, not healthcare workers, but the institutions develop and promote ethical perspectives. At its worst case, organizational ethics is kind of in the basement with compliance and it's around avoiding illegal practice. But, but really when done well, organizational ethics can really foster a just culture and ensure kind of institutional integrity and provide kind of transparency to the community that it serves. As I was going along, I was thinking in a blood banking community, how, how might you see them? And, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this in the sessions we've done for AABB, but, you know, how does an institution receive platelets? That's one that's kind of a hot topic in the news. And if you're not in agreement on how your institution is receiving platelets, how do you feel about that, right? You might, that might cause moral distress. You might not understand why your institution has chosen to do this method as opposed to others, and it may not be transparent if you don't have a robust organizational ethics. And we also talked about COVID already, but you know, how do you deal with these chronic shortages? Do you dump it all on the transfusion specialist who's on call to just use their best judgment? Or have you created policy around here's for how we're going to manage chronically short supply for the duration? And then, you know, one of the other things that, that is pretty common is, you know, cell therapy donations that go bad, the patient changes their mind, the patient die, right? So something happened, the donor changes their mind, and then the director is kind of stuck being like, well, what am I supposed to do here? You can probably come up with a lot more, and, and our listeners probably can as well. But there are a lot of areas where pre-planning and thinking in advance and being actively engaged um, in your institution can, at a minimum, help you understand how they are or are not acting out their mission statement. At a best, you have the opportunity to get involved and make sure that your values or the values of your professional societies are being understood and, and are being valued um, at an institutional level. You know, I think you gave us a lot of really great applicable places there as you were going through for our listeners to kind of reflect on. And I think fortunately, some of us are involved in some of those kind of high, higher up hospital leadership. But for those of us who are not, what would be your kind of recommendation for how to reach out to who is doing organizational ethics at our institution? And the question is really who is doing it? So, you know, I know at Dartmouth, they had an organizational ethics committee that met, I think, a few times a year. I'm pretty new down at Texas Health Fort Worth, so I'm still not super clear on who does that. So what I would say is, in general, the chair of your ethics committee is going to understand where the boundaries of their work does. And, and, and often, the chair will have a role in the, there are also research ethics committees that um, work closely with IRBs, right? IRBs really say this is not unethical, but research ethics committees might say, well, here's a way you could change this to do this more ethically, or here's how we might implement another IRB's approval in our institution. So there are a variety of other non-clinical ethics committees that might exist. And people tend to keep tabs on who one another are. So 
you know, I would say reach out to the chair or even the administrator of the ethics committee, buy them a cup of coffee and come with a list of questions. One of the things that I feel like is pretty ubiquitous about ethics committees is we love to talk about what we're doing because part of what we need to do is get the word out around, you know, this is not the ethics that you learned about, you know, we're not you know, we're of course like opposed to Tuskegee and all those kind of horrible things that happened in the past, but we're not interested in shutting down your work. We're interested in collaborating with you and helping you understand kind of maybe a new and different perspective. Oh, you got the same mission as us in laboratory medicine and pathology. We are, overlap, we are kin. <laughs> yeah, no, the overlap, I appreciate the overlap more and more every time we talk. It's absolutely true. We don't tend to be in the basement like you guys sometimes are because we tend to not have any space at all. We tend to like meet in odd conference rooms and at the local coffee shop. But yes, part of it is people just kind of assume that it's happening and they don't really want to know how the sandwich is made. And so getting the word out is, is key for both of our fields. So as we kind of close out, I, I always love highlighting all these areas of practice are really continuing and evolving, and it's not a stagnant field. And so I was wondering, Dr. Ryder, if you'd be willing to share one or two predictions kind of for the, the future of medical ethics, just to kind of, you know, open our mind up to what are the main issues and questions and how is your field evolving? Sure. So, you know, one of the things I'd like to see in the future, um, this is more of a wish list than a prediction, is really more collaboration between ethics committees and healthcare providers on clinical topics. There are some great vehicles for discussion, like Schwartz Rounds, which is a national phenomenon that started in Boston, that could also be called kind of compassionate care rounds, where cases are presented in a multidisciplinary fashion, and they're not talked about like, well, did the doctor do something wrong? Did the nurse forget to do something? But really about what it felt like to take care of challenging patients and what we can take away from that. I do think more and more hospitals are recognizing that that provides a service to their communities. If you're looking for one thing to do for ethics, other than joining the ethics committee, you know, advocating for Schwartz rounds to come to your hospital, I think would be, would be a great place to start. For clinical ethics, the bread and butter, I feel like is going to remain the same. It's communication breakdown, it's conflict between providers, it's distress. In the same way that people just keep having heart attacks, right? People just keep having coming into the hospital and they've told their son one thing and their daughter another thing. And now all of a sudden nobody knows what to do, right? So, so that's kind of our bread and butter. And I don't see that changing in terms of the actual work that we're doing. But, you know, I do think, again, taking a broader view, maybe even a policy view, genomic medicine and, and genomic therapies are really changing how we practice medicine, changing what is a fatal illness and what is an outpatient manageable non-fatal illness. And at the same time, it's also changing the cost of the care that we provide and pricing many people out of the gold standard or A plus standard of care. I think finances are always, you know, somewhere in every challenge. And how do we manage, how do we provide care for the uninsured is one of those, you know, that's not something I as a clinical ethicist deal with, but I do think it's something that we as a society need to grapple with. And the more that I work in Texas, I'm also aware coming from New Hampshire, not only uninsured, but uninsurable and how we manage patients who have healthcare needs and who, because of their country of origin, um, not only don't have insurance, but can never get insurance in our country and how we manage that. Ethics is, is in somewhat more of an, we're more of an echo than a, than a leader in moving forward in the future, right? Like developments happen and then we kind of come along and 
try and help people figure out how do I cope with this? Where are the pressure points? What do we need to do to feel okay? Feel that what we're doing is, is right and appropriate for our patients. You know, it certainly is changing. One of the big things in the, in the legal areas that are happening now are surrogate decision-making laws, right? New Hampshire, for example, as well as Texas has a list of people who can make decisions. I know Vermont does not currently have that. And then, you know, physician-assisted suicide, which I don't think is going to impact transfusion medicine all that closely unless it's gone horribly awry. But that is something else that is kind of sweeping the nation as a, both a policy as well as a, how is that implemented in practice? And uh, some states embrace at other states not. There's always a lot of really interesting ethical challenges out there. Oh, I guess one more is stem cells, and that might be applicable to your audience. So these use stem cells to get rid of your crow's feet, use stem cells to get rid of your IBS, these kind of non-licensed stem cell centers who are shilling very good pseudoscience in an effort to get money from people for unlicensed treatments by unqualified providers. I can come down firmly and say that that's unethical, but how do we actually manage that it is, a whole, is a whole different story. Wow, you've definitely given us a sense that <laughs> you said it's an echo rather than a leader, but there's a lot of echoes out there. This, this field is really exciting. And, it, and really touches on so many aspects, not just of medicine, but it sounds like very much specifically on where medicine is evolving. And I love that. That comes back to your echo analogy that where medicine is advancing, that's where med ethics uh, lives. That is your area. We've been rounding with Dr. Hillary Ryder on medical ethics. And, and thank you so much, Dr. Ryder, for taking the time to discuss this topic with us. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing this podcast and others when they're up and ready. Right on. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please follow or subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations.